This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some free ebooks and drills and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of dating and attraction such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, including some episodes on breakups and relationship management. That's where all the basics are, so get a handle on that first. We've got boot camps running every single month here in Hollywood, California. Details on those at theartofcharm.com. Looking forward to meeting all you guys here at AOC. Today we're talking with animal behavior biologist Jennifer Vertolin, author of Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tells Us About Human Relationships. We're going to talk about the similarities between humans and animals when it comes to dating and relationships. We're also going to talk about what we can learn from animals to improve these areas of our lives how to quote-unquote peacock, literally, the biology behind mate selection in animals and the parallels in humans, and of course why being adventurous can be a key to long-term success, which is really counterintuitive, and what we can learn from an albatross when it comes to dating and communication. So enjoy this one with Jennifer Vertolin. All right, Jennifer Vertolin, or Dr. Vertolin, sorry, you didn't spend, (laughs) what, 10 years in evil doctor medical school to be called Miss Vertolin. Um, (laughs) I, I screwed that line up, but it's from Austin Powers, for those of you who are wondering where the hell I'm going with that. But you're an animal behavior biologist, and I mean, you've been on a lot of different segments and things like that in psychology today, but what I really liked about and why I thought this was a good fit is you're actually, you wrote a book on called Wild Connection, What Animal Mating and Courtship Tell Us About Human Relationships. So you talk about the similarities between humans and animals when it comes to dating and relationships, and I thought that would be a funny, a funny show, for sure, and I'm looking forward to this as well. How did you get interested in this? Because it seems like usually when you're looking for insight to human relationships, you you have human relationships. Well, you know, I have to say in my case, uh, the impetus to actually write the book came from taking kind of stock of how my personal relationships were going. And then thinking about, I've always studied animal behavior, but I've specifically studied mating behavior. And I thought wait a minute, I study all these animals, I know all the ins and outs of how they successfully have relationships or mate and raise offspring. So why am I having so much trouble in my own life? And can I look at what they're doing or not doing and apply some of those principles and learn something? So how long have you spent watching animals, spent watching animals (laughs) date and court and have relationships? Obviously, like chimps have relationships and stuff like that. But Yes. Do insects and things like that, I mean, to what extent do these things have relationships, fish and squirrels and things like that? 
you know, it depends on how you want to qualify what is a relationship. It could be a simple one-time interaction, which might be very common for a lot of things like insects or squirrels, depending on the species of squirrel. But on the other hand, uh, you can have fish like French angelfish that mate for life and they can be together for 10 years. And so what you see there are different types of behaviors depending on the duration and the nature of the relationship. Oh, wow. There's a despite however many fish there are in the sea joke in there somewhere, but <laughs> I just can't do it to the audience, so I'll, I'll refrain. So, okay, that's interesting. So some species are monogamous, as we've seen, and there's endless debate. Were humans designed to be monogamous? And right. there's all these biologists that are like, no, and then there's all these other biologists who go to church and say yes. It's really interesting. So today we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff as well, but where do we start with this? I mean, are there some sort of overarching concepts that you see among all animals? Is there something that all animals have in common with humans, or is there a lot that makes humans unique, which I would imagine there must be? Where does your book really hit people over the head? What surprises people most about the research that you conducted? Oh, gosh, you know, I'm not sure what would surprise people the most. I think a lot of things surprise them the most, especially in some ways that we are similar. But even maybe what might be most surprising would be somehow animals seem to get a lot of things right where we don't when it comes to communication, for examples. Animals rarely have miscommunication in their relationships. And uh, when it comes to attracting a mate, there is very few examples, if any, where there's deception involved in your physical appearance in, in attracting a mate. And so I think some of the overarching themes that we can learn from animals that just apply to even some of the advice we get from humans in our human relationships is to, you know, be choosy when you are picking a mate um, and look at traits that matter to you and be very careful about how you pick a partner. Be honest about yourself, your appearance, uh, your intentions. Also, attraction is always a big thing. It's very big for animals and it's very big for people. And there's a tendency to try to say that looks don't matter or we shouldn't put that much emphasis on our appearance. But the reality is that our biology is driving us to make certain decisions about who we're attracted to based on what they look like. And it's very hard to escape that. Yeah. Let's stop on that one because that's sort of the big lie that I think both sexes tell themselves. You know, there's a lot of yes. people that are like, you know, if he doesn't like you for you, because you're beautiful, honey, and you don't don't settle right. for that. And it's like, you know what? I say, listen, if guys could rewire themselves to like right. women that were not physically attractive, but were just really cool, every right. single guy in the world would do that instantaneously. Because <laughs> right. dating and trying to find somebody that you're physically attracted to and have an emotional connection with is yeah. the great challenge of our lives as men. You know what? I agree with you completely that it's a lie both sexes tell each other because the truth is, and maybe a lot of women don't want to admit it, but we react exactly the same way. And I think that there's a level at which you must have physical attraction. It is You cannot have a successful long-term relationship without a level of physical attraction. But that's not the end of the story. And what you said is exactly right, that the sort of pinnacle of success would be to be able to marry together physical attraction and compatibility and likability and a personality. Everything must fit together. 
And I think that we do have a tendency to say, well, you shouldn't pay attention to how I look. But the truth is we make a decision in a tenth of a second about whether or not men and women make this decision within a tenth of a second, whether or not they find you attractive and also what their opinions are about your personality traits, how trustworthy you are, how likable you are. And these are the first impressions. And our brains are wired to do that, not just men's, everybody's. You know, that's interesting because I definitely believe that. And one of the things that is absolutely key to realize, though, the key differentiator here is for men, the percentage, the part, the piece of the pie chart that right. is youth and fertility and the way that women look is enormous. It's probably absolutely. 90%. And, and where women are looking at looks for men, because a lot of guys are going, oh, crap, I'm not that good looking. But I right. thought Jordan said that charm and charisma could overcome that. Oh, my God, this whole thing's a fraud. No. Um, <laughs> no. The channel that women are looking at that says looks are important, it starts off smaller, much smaller than the one yes. that men have, and it dwindles quite a bit over time, whereas unfortunately for us guys, we're kind of always looking for youth and fertility, much to the detriment of most of our relationships throughout our lives as a species. Uh, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And women will actually if you give them a small budget to purchase quote unquote traits that they prefer, depending on their own economic situation, will highly value traits like intelligence and kindness over physical attractiveness. But once a female does not need a male for resources, then the tables are turned and they sort of act more like a man. So, all right, let's jump into that because that's really interesting. So if you're a woman who's got a PhD in animal behavior biology, <laughs> do you suddenly go, you know what? I don't need a provider protector because I don't need no man. I got a check and a career. <laughs> well, uh, for myself personally, I would have to say, no, I haven't made that switch. And maybe with age, also women, as they get older, highly value the size of a man's heart over his wallet. Okay. Hope, thank God for that, right? For a lot of right. us as well. <laughs> so how does that change with age and women? Because for example, a lot of Younger guys, they go, ah, oh, women, they want money, and maybe right. true to some extent, probably they're lacking something else. They're probably also filtering in those types of women. We've, however, right. for women, when does that sort of change? I mean, do you find that younger females are looking more for provider protectors and older females are not? I mean, how do you... I would predict, I don't have any data, you know, one way or the other, but I would predict that that would be the case primarily because older women are not necessarily looking for a good provider to help raise offspring. Ah, okay. Obviously, we know why first impressions are important. It takes half a second to make that decision or whatever. What right. do they necessarily tell us other than, is it sort of binary where it's like, yes, I would, no, I wouldn't? Because I feel like that's how guys are, to be quite frank. <laughs> I think in animals, we can say that a female shows clear choice. It's yes or no. And usually being pursued doesn't change her mind. So females choose males based on traits that matter to them. And if you are, for example, a cardinal, it could be as simple as how red you are. Uh, because redder males find food better because they can afford to put and devote all that coloration into their feathers. So that signals to the female that you're a high quality male. And a duller colored male in competition with that male for that female could sing and do whatever gymnastics and tricks he might have up his feathers, but he won't be able to convince her. So female choice is pretty clear. It is yes or no. And I think we might be similar to males in that regard. Excellent. It seems like there are definite physical traits attached to certain characteristics. It's the same thing true with humans, because I think guys, when they try to play this game, are like six pack abs, 
right. Rolex. And I mean, are those the human signals or are we kind of doing it wrong? Well, you know, you said there's many layers to this. And one of the yeah. first layers that six pack abs or not will not change is how you smell to a female. Oh, man. Right. And so there's good evidence for animals and for humans to show that we are attracted, physically attracted to those individuals that are most opposite to us in certain immune fighting genes. And these genes are called major histocompatibility genes or MHC for short. And basically, the reason why we would be very attracted to someone who has the most opposite combination that we do is because when we have offspring, we mix all that together and we get basically a, our offspring have the best chance to fight off a variety of diseases because they've got this great combination. We know in people that when women are on birth control, they're actually now attracted to individuals, to males that are more similar to them in MHC genes. Okay. And so it's basically pheromones, right? This is what we're talking about is what the perfume and cologne industry has tried to capitalize on. Nothing can replace your natural scent. And so sometimes the first cue is not really what you see, but maybe what you smell. Oh, weird. Okay. And I've heard that we screw that up by wearing colognes and like we mess it up by showering too much and stuff like that, which is why, you know, I never shower. I'm all about my MHC being as authentic as possible. I mean, I think showering has its place because good hygiene would be another trait that's important, whether you are a human or an animal. But I do think that heavy use of colognes does mask a person's individual scent. And then we're sort of really inhibiting the ability of another individual to detect our scent. There's that layer. And then, like you said, there's a visual layer. And what traits matter there? It you know, the wonderful thing about humans is that there's so much variation in what people are attracted to. You know, for animals, it's a bit more basic. It's how symmetrical you are, how similar the left and right side of your face, your body, your wings are. Whereas in people, those things matter too. People rate individuals with a higher degree of symmetry as more attractive. But there's other things. Some people are attracted to really exaggerated traits like big chins or big noses. And so the wonderful message there is that there's something for everybody. So you don't have to try to be different than what you are. Oh, that's good news. Because I feel like a lot of people are looking for like the Jay Leno meets my great uncle look with a giant (laughs) nose and a big chin. (laughs) But it's true. Just like there's some men who really prefer very nice feet. I mean, I had a date, you know, want to evaluate my feet before he would agree to go out with me. (laughs) Let's back up the truck. That's weird and fetishy, right? But there's a biological basis for this because it turns out that neuroscientists have mapped the brain and feet are right next to the genitals in the brain. They're in close proximity to one another. And so for some people, there is a huge sort of attraction to feet. And this particular person really just insisted that he couldn't go out with me if I had ugly feet. Back to the show. How did he bring that up? And where did you meet? I just Let's just put everything aside and tell this story real quick, because there's obviously some different levels of tact and 
and things going on here right. among the science community that we just we let's pry into this a little. But he was not a scientist, so you know, I would say I did, it was one of my more unusual experiences. I will say that. I had signed up like many people do for online dating. Obviously it happened online because of that. Right. Show. <laughs> and you know, there was the normal exchange of photographs so that you can sort of decide which I always represented myself honestly in my photographs and right and he's like great shot of you on the beach yes but yeah, no, i didn't really see your feet they're covered <laughs> by sand he, no i mean he really said well your face looks very nice but we were talking and we were trying to plan when we were going to meet for the first time and he said you know, i have to be honest with you I and mean, your face is very nice but i can't go out with someone who has ugly feet would you be willing to send me a picture of your feet so what did you do? Lotion up and like take a couple <laughs> well, I, of snapshots? I, well, you know, I am a scientist. So, you know, the scientist in me was like, I have to find out how my feet rate. This is just too interesting to pass up. Of course, the woman in me was like very insecure about how my feet would be rated. So I spent quite a bit of time trying to get just the right picture of my feet. <laughs> did you get a pedicure first? No, it was like instantaneous. That would have been very girly of you to be like, oh, (laughs) I need to go get a pedicure and then Photoshop these pictures of my feet. (laughs) But see, that would be dishonest advertising. So it was, you know what? My feet are either going to sink or swim. You know, like them or not. These are the feet. Did he approve of your feet? He did. (laughs) And I felt really quite happy about Validated? Like, yeah. Take take that girl in third grade who didn't think I was pretty. (laughs) I got nice feet. But, you know, it's like men worry about their abs and things. And we worry about sort of other traditional body parts. I had never worried about my feet. So this was sort of a new experience. Well, now that now that you've got that under your belt, you can worry about your feet and everything else on your body. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So you're (laughs) welcome. Right. (laughs) You know, the point is that, you know, if you have blonde hair, some men prefer blondes and some women prefer blonde men. Some women prefer dark head of hair. Some women prefer bald men. That's the great thing. There's so much variation in what we find attractive as humans that we have got the best situation compared to all other animals. That makes sense, right? Because we're not just all looking for the shiny feathers and then like those of us that don't get it don't get to reproduce or or whatever. And it's funny because there's this pickup-y term. It's like peacocking, wear a cool hat and and light up (laughs) necklace and all this other stupid crap. Animals, they do, but they don't do it in the same dishonest way that humans do. So a peacock is like, look at my shiny feathers. And the cardinal's like, but humans are like, look at this watch. I'm really borrowing it from a friend, but I'm kind of using it to get girls. And I rented this car actually belongs to my uncle. He doesn't really know I have it. And we're going to go to my friend's house. And that's why I don't know where anything is in any of the drawers, but right. I'm still going to try to have sex with you. Humans are like kind of doing it all wrong when it comes to that stuff, right? We don't showcase our natural attributes in the right way a lot of the time. Well, right, because I think there's a message that somehow we have to have different attributes. And I think the message that animals can show us in this regard is take your best attributes, whatever they are, and highlight them and display them. Because just like we were just finishing talking about in terms of what people find attractive, there's something for everybody. And I think that you do a disservice to yourself and to others when you misrepresent who and what you are. And when we do it on things like appearance or money, uh, status, in that sense, eventually it leads to a lack of success ultimately in the relationship because it's telling you something about the character of that person. 
Oh, interesting. So you can get people for a short time only with that strategy. Absolutely. I think that's true. Both males and females viscerally sort of reject when they've been deceived uh, at some level. And there's a reason why we want what we see to be what we get. Our relationships are important. Our goals of having and raising a successful family are important or having a successful relationship if not wanting a family is not what you're about. So those things depend on the information you are evaluating being accurate. And that makes total sense and really jibes with Art of Charm philosophy in that the more authentic you can be, the more powerful it is because there's something to be said for not only long-term relationship success that has to do with being authentic, but also because since it's such a rare case where somebody showcases themselves, shows up in a vulnerable way, and also shows up in a powerful way through vulnerability oftentimes, then that actually sets you apart from all of the guys who are faking it, which we kind of can tell is happening biologically. You know, I think that the challenge for men is that females, human and animal, are in some ways programmed or wired, if you will, to pay attention to exaggerated traits, right? If you look in the animal kingdom, it's the males that are flashy. It's the males that are colorful. It's the males that are strutting around. The bigger the tail feather, the more females it attracts. When you look at animals that have had their tail feathers artificially enhanced, Right. So basically a bunch of researchers like me go out and stick extra feathers on and make that tail extra long. All the females go crazy for this male. And the problem for those females is they don't see in the animal kingdom what you see is what you get. Um, And when we go in and we add these tail feathers, what we see is that those females now find this male who would normally be a short tailed, not that great of a male. They're so attracted to that exaggerated trait that he gets all the matings, even though he's not the best quality male. The difference is, as people, right, we're humans, we have cognitive ability to discern different traits. And so I would say females and males should pay more attention to what they're seeing, that it is really an honest reflection. The bird who is attracted to a longer tail, if we artificially enhance that tail, she can't help but be attracted to that male. But normally that male would not get the matings. And so when we men short term can get the attention of females by displaying exaggerated false traits. But in the end, I don't think it will be successful. Great. And so what else goes into being slash attracting a high quality mate? So authenticity, of course, at first. What else? I mean, what can we do to maximize that process? Because that at the end of the day is what this whole show is about, right? Being and attracting a high quality mate. Right. Well, I think the first thing is to know what traits matter to you, because there is also this idea that opposites attract, right? But the research that's coming out, I mean, at least they've known for a while that married couples are actually more similar to one another in a variety of traits, but they didn't know it it sort of had the chicken and the egg kind of problem. Did they become more similar because they were married for some time or did they start out more similar? And what we see in animals is that depending on what traits are important. So for example, the great tit, personality matters. Great tits do better. So bold, exploratory, more adventurous, you know, get off the couch, get out of the house kind of birds, pair up with, preferentially pair up with other individuals that are more similar to them. So adventurous males and females that pair up together are more successful with each other than if they were to pair up with a kind of shyer, stay at home, 
type of great tit bird, if you will, the opposite extreme. And we also see animals pairing up with individuals. When we're talking about long-term relationships or lifetime relationships, they tend to pair up with individuals that are more similar to them on a variety of traits, with the exception of those immune-fighting genes. I think that you need to know what are the traits that matter to you? What are your deal breakers? And compatibility, I mean, even cockatiels, they will divorce if they are not compatible with one another. They normally mate for life. But if they're not behaviorally or personality-wise in sync with one another, they will find another mate. Okay, wow, that's really interesting. Why do you think the adventurous couples tend to do better longer term, or did I misunderstand you? No, no, so with great tit birds, they've shown that similarity in personality is a predictor of reproductive success for pairs. And I think uh, it's because bolder individuals in the environment where those individuals do better when they're paired up with one another, they're able to go find food, you know, much more readily for each other. And they, of course, are sharing parenting duties. And so both individuals have to be equally as good as the other at those important tasks. And in people, there's some research coming out now that's showing, for example, in a African community, they are finding that individuals that are marry one another based on a trait of how generous you are to others. They preferentially marry someone who's more similar to them in their desire and willingness to be cooperative and helpful. Wow, that's really interesting. And how did you find that out? Well, so I was actually looking at the compatibility chapter. So in one of my chapters, communication, cooperation, and compromise, that followed the sort of investigation of are you mating or dating? Because if what you're up to is just mating, you know, one night stand in people and in animals, the decision is made on physical attraction alone. Uh huh. Yeah, of course. If you are dating, whether you're an albatross or a person, there's an evaluation period and, and albatrosses will actually date for like four years. This is a bird, but they can live up to 60 years actually. And so they mate for life. They do divorce. It's very rare, but they spend a very long time dating and evaluating a partner. So of course there must be a physical attraction initially decisions made on whether you're a good quality individual physically, mm -hmm. but then it's about compatibility. And so I was looking at do animals basically choose individuals that are more similar to each other because I wondered about this. We're always told opposites attract, opposites attract. You know, I tend to like someone who's more similar to myself. It turns out that basically in a Senegalese village, individuals choose to marry someone who is as cooperative and helpful to others as they themselves are. And so I think that everybody's different. Everybody has traits that they highly value. And first step would be to decide what is it you are looking for in a mate. And then are you those things yourself? Now back to the good stuff. Huh, okay. You can't expect somebody to like something in you that they don't have themselves right. and vice versa. Or you can, but it might be a little bit dysfunctional. Right. What's an albatross date like? What does that look like? <laughs> Well, you know, they don't go out to Red Lobster or anything, although they can feed each other by regurgitating seafood. Mm, sounds <laughs> so, like my first date. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess there's some benefit to being human, right? 
So albatrosses start in like their preteens. They go on a lot of dates. I don't know what their dates kind of look like, but they spend a lot of time yammering and they call it sky calling where they, they kind of do all these displays with a bunch of different individuals. And then over time, it becomes fewer and fewer individuals. And then eventually they pick their partner. And it's a little bit different for something like, say, barnacle geese. Barnacle geese will have several relationships that may last a a few weeks where they basically spend all their time together with one other barnacle goose and before they settle on a life partner. And some individuals find that perfect barnacle goose (laughs) right away. And others might have three or four relationships before they find their partner. And so their dates or relationships, uh, test trial relationships uh, last a few weeks where they're just constantly with one another. Hmm. And what is the primary cause of albatross divorce then? (laughs) It varies from species to species and it is incredibly low. It's like seven to eight percent divorce rate. Now that's not infidelity rate. That's just divorce rate. So what can cause divorce is uh, if you are late returning to the grounds, the nesting grounds. And this is also true for something called a Nazca booby, which is uh, related to the blue-footed booby in the Galapagos Islands. And they mate for life, but they also will divorce if their partner fails to show up on time. Now, it's not a day or an hour late, but if you're like a week late, they sort of, okay, it's enough and I'll take another partner. Thanks. It would be sort of like if your girlfriend left to go to the store and just didn't come back for a week and a half. Yeah, actually, I think most guys <laughs> would really love that. <laughs> okay, well, if you put the reverse, most girls wouldn't like that. <laughs> yeah, probably. They might be wondering about that. <laughs> Where did you go? I think it's time to replace you. <laughs> Seriously, the line at Whole Foods was really long. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and yeah. and what about some of these common communication problems that you see in humans and how do animals handle that? Because they don't even have language, but it seems like they communicate in many ways that are, are much more efficient than the way the humans do it. Or at least they don't have the old, I'm fine. They're like, no, I'm going to attack you instead of, you know, feeding you regurgitated seafood. You kind of know <laughs> what's going on if you're in trouble and you're, you're an animal. Well, you do. And they are starting to find that animals have something very similar to language. They have grammar, they have syntax, depending on the species. But whether you're talking about a frog or you're talking about a squirrel or you're talking about an albatross or a bee, for instance, there are certain sort of rules of communication that animals seem to have, and they go to great lengths to avoid miscommunication. And I think that I found that so enlightening because I thought we don't, we take, especially in our relationships, we take for granted so much in terms of communication, even though we do have a sophisticated language, you know, compared to all other animals. And yet we seem to have the most trouble when it comes to talking to one another. How does that really compare? And how can we learn from animals to figure out how to communicate with each other better? Well, I think first thing would be to identify what are the most common forms of miscommunication that we have in our relationships. And I think one is not listening to one another. And, you know, this is uh, typically maybe a complaint that females might have about males. Like, he's not listening to me. He didn't hear me. Um, I'm sitting right in front of him and he's not listening to me. And I think in that case, you know, not to give males a pass by any means, but male brains are wired to actually pay more attention to voices with a deeper pitch. 
<laughs> it's true. And it, it's not so different from something like, say, a green frog. So green frogs, males, also pay more attention to deeper croaks. And that's because, of course, they are concerned about other males invading their territory. And when males hear a voice, human males, they actually kind of uh, create a picture in their mind of the speaker and compare it against another male. Mm. Yeah, that, yes. my girlfriend has a really high-pitched voice, and she's always complaining that I never hear her, but I can hear other people just right. fine a lot of the time. And she's like, you have <laughs> hearing damage from that show you do with the headphones. They're too loud, and it's really, it's really just her. So maybe that's why. Well, right. And also, when women get upset, unfortunately, our pitch actually goes even higher when we're excited or upset. So again, it's not an excuse for males not to take an active role, you can try to create signals to reestablish attention. Perfect. So like she's really upset and it's just like it's so high pitched and fast. It's like she's not even there. It's the so right. The Charlie Brown kind of phenomenon. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. Yeah. Right. And so I, of course, am advocating for women to lower the pitch of your voice, especially if you actually want them to hear you. And or, you know, do something fun, like randomly play, you know, the croak of a male green frog in between your conversation or some other weird, deep sounding animal just to kind of get their attention back. But I think that we have to understand that biology is a part of why we might have that particular communication problem. And it's not an excuse, but then because we can become aware of some of these underlying biological processes, we can make conscious decisions to pay more attention or to even ask. I don't know if how your girlfriend would react if you asked her, can you lower your frequency? Yeah. <laughs> and some women aren't able to. Right. Like, if you really want me to listen to you, you should start talking like a dude. <laughs> Essentially, it helps. You know, and another kind of form of not listening and another source of miscommunication, I think, that happens in people that we don't see in animals is talking over one another. Okay. Why, why is that? They just value communication more? So, of course, they are trying to get information. And so in order to receive that information, you have to be listening to it. And if you're communicating at the same time, you can't hear. And people, basically, our brains aren't able to multitask when it comes to language. So I know a lot of us think that we can, but even if you're thinking of the response while the other person is talking, it's the same as if you were talking to your brain. Oh, wow. Okay. What can we do? Can we do anything about that? Well, I think that it takes a very big concerted effort. When we look at animals like birds, black-bellied wrens, or this one wonderful little bird called the tropical boo-boo, which I can't help but just kind of smile when I say the name boo-boo. Mm -hmm. They're so in sync with one another when it comes to communication that they rarely, if ever, sing over one another. And so one individual will start singing. And then as soon as they're finished, because the other bird must have been paying such close attention, there's virtually no gap. And they start singing. And they do this when they're defending their territory. And so... There's a, a very strong and concerted effort to be unified in their purpose at that moment, which is to defend their territory. And the only way to do that successfully is if you're paying close attention to what your partner is doing. Okay. Wow. So I, there, what you can take from that is very simple. is to take turns talking. I mean, how do we make that a habit? Because I think everybody knows that they're supposed to take turns talking. 
Well, right. But I think you have to practice it maybe by noticing how often you interrupt or how often you're interrupted, because maybe you listen just fine, but you're constantly interrupted. And so then there's a sort of frustration that happens. And now you're more focused on being interrupted and less focused on what the topic is, which we can also take a cue there from black bellied wrens, which if they're not in sync when they're talking, they actually stop the conversation and take a break. Okay, perfect. So I would say first notice, do you listen? Are you thinking of a response while your partner is talking? Are they interrupting you? Are you interrupting them? And then you can practice. I mean, it's hard to break habits. And and a lot of these things are just habits that we've made. And Yeah, that's for sure true. And there's a lot more of this in the book as well. Things like make sure you explain problems in complete detail. Don't let other people assume any portion of the conversation. Oh, yeah. And things like that. I think... One of the points that you'd made that we talked about before the show, which I really love, was you'd mentioned if you're not being the best version of yourself, it's difficult to feel comfortable and confident, and it's difficult to genuinely relate to others. So how do we start to do that? Because again, the whole purpose of The Art of Charm is to become the best version of yourself, Mm -hmm. feel comfortable and confident, and genuinely relate to others. So that's huge, but what would you say is a first step to do that? Because of course, with all your animal research, it would be great to hear what you think from your your profession. The first thing is to really take a stock and inventory of your yourself, what you like and what you don't like about yourself. Don't take an inventory of someone else. Take your inventory and really evaluate yourself as objectively as you can and decide, okay, these are the things that I like about myself. These are the things I wish I could be or do differently And then on those things that maybe you are not so happy with for yourself, you have to make a decision. Is it something that can be changed or not? And if it can be changed, then, of course, maybe develop a plan uh, on how to work towards where you want to be on that particular issue or trait. And if it can't be changed, you know, for example, I am five foot three and three quarters. Um, (laughs) I wish I was taller. And, you know, but I'm not, and I can't change that. So instead of feeling bad now that I'm short, I can just say, I like the way I am. I wish I was taller, but I'm not, I'm not going to focus on the things I can't change. And I think that that goes a long way towards uh, presenting yourself. Ultimately, when you can say, these are the things I like, these are the things I'm working on. And these are the things I have to accept. Then the way you're interacting and Meeting other people in the world has a much different texture and quality to it. And that is attractive Absolutely. to others. Yeah, so you can basically ask yourself, what can be changed? If no, don't worry about it. Easier said than done. And if yes, yes. create a plan to improve upon it and actually follow through because you've got to either work to accept something as you are right. or you've got to work to change it. Well, right. And I think that, you know, I got that also for myself from animals. And I think that that's one of the things I want to impart to your listeners is that, you know, animals are so wonderful at just being what they are. The squirrel is trying to be the best squirrel he can be. He is not trying to be a swan. Interesting. Yeah, it kind of goes along with Maya Angelou's quote, when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. So if you see a squirrel or you see a swan, and then next time you see them, they tell you you're, right. they're an albatross. Then right. believe what you saw the first time. And I think humans do that a lot. Like, huh, he has these weird things that I really hate that come through yes. sometimes. But other times he's really nice. Oh, I'll just get married to him and then maybe he'll right. be that nice guy all the time. 
Well, right. And I think that that's where it comes in. So once you've like sort of looked at yourself and, and decided where you stand on, you know, how you feel about yourself and what you can do to improve, then it's time to look at, okay, now what is it that I want? You know, it's, it almost is very freeing because we're not, you don't have to judge another person anymore. You can just say, oh, that's not what I'm looking for. You're a squirrel and that's fine. Be a wonderful squirrel, but I'm looking for an albatross. Great. Well, thanks so much. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Well, I think that using the approach of, of thinking about how animals deal with some of these issues can really open the door to some interesting conversations with your partner or your girlfriends, a sort of lighthearted way to talk about some common human problems. And so I hope that your listeners are, are able to get that from this. Excellent. Thanks so much, Jennifer Verdelin. We'll link to your website in the show notes as well as the Facebook page and the book and your Wild Connections blog on psychology today. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. All right, I really dug that one. We could have talked about that for a, a lot longer, but of course, I'd like to leave you guys wanting just a little bit more, so you can check out Jennifer Vertolin's book and website, jennifervertolin.com, of course, linked in the show notes along with the book. I really think that there are, of course, a lot of human and animal similarities when it comes to dating relationships, but I had no idea how much, and I think it's kind of cute and funny to explore that. I really think that there is probably a lot we can learn from animals to improve our dating and relationships, despite the idea that things might be, quote-unquote, more complicated when it comes to humans, and of course they are. I also found it really fascinating, our discussion behind the biology of mate selection in animals and the parallels between that and humans, and I feel like there's some insight there for us guys and gals looking to date and mate, and especially found it counterintuitive why being adventurous can be a key to long-term relationship success. Of course, that depends on the species, but I also think there's something there for us humans as well. So hopefully you gleaned something from that, and I will see you guys next time. Solid show as usual, if I do say so myself. Show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. Bootcamp details, that's our live training at theartofcharm.com. And that's also where you can find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, then that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for The Art of Charm podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's it. You guys can also help us. If you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, give us a five-star rating and write something nice. We'll love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash The Art of Charm and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily and get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing training from us. So tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week, go out there and get social, and leave everything better than you found it. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 